Good morning. If you don't know me, my name's AJ. I'm the youth director here at Emmanuel. And uh, we, today we are on the fourth word in our series, the seven words to the churches today. And uh, you can find this letter, you can find it in the last book of your Bible. It's chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And before we get into reading the passage, it's good to remember that these letters, they're, they're letters from Jesus, and they're speaking to a real church in the first century. And what's important about this is that even though we are separated by 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years, and, and we're still separated by nearly 10,000 kilometers, the things that Jesus says to the church in Theatira is still as valuable to us, is still as important to us as it was to them. And so as we read these letters, yes, there's a lot of cultural nuances. There's a lot of things that we can uncover to better understand what Jesus is saying. But it is very much applicable to us today. And we'll find that as we go along with this passage, that the church in Theatira actually hits fairly close to home to the church in the West, in, in North America, in Canada, in in the lower mainland. And so, turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. If you haven't gotten there already, you can also follow the screen there. I am going to find a letter in this box, dressed to Theatira. Look at that. Came a long way to get here. So I think it's worthwhile that we crack it open. Jesus is speaking, verses 18. To the angel of the church in Theatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing now more than what you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Theatira, to you who did not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received my authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Amen. Jesus doesn't play around. You know, these letters, they seem short, but they're so jam-packed. In fact, what's interesting about Theatira is that it's the least known of the cities. It's the least important. There's no one, there's no important figure that comes out of this city. The most important person we know outside of the Bible is this guy named Nicander. And he's a grammar, a Greek grammarian. Which is to say, it's like saying that the most important person to have ever come out of Abbotsford was an English teacher. That's how interesting Theatira was. That's how important they were. And yet, when we look at this letter, it's clear that it doesn't matter how important you feel you are. It doesn't matter how popular or how relevant you are to the rest of the world. God looks at you, looks at the church here, and he's very much, we're very much as precious to him as any other church. We're his people. Church in Theatira, it's not very rich in history. You might remember uh, someone that comes there. So inside the Bible, we know that a lady named Lydia, if you remember Acts chapter 16, she's from Theatira. She sold dyes, purple dye. And the city, uh, over the past few centuries before this letter was written, has been rebuilt, destroyed, renamed, destroyed again, and rebuilt again so often until it was taken over by the Roman Empire. And only then, when there was no threat to invaders, did the city actually start to prosper. And it prospered in the way of commerce. See, Theatira was very, um, was very important. It was very famous for this point only. It was very good at hosting trades and crafts guilds. It was a commercial success. When there was no threat to invasion, that's when the merchant class came in and saw, oh, hey, we have this huge plot of land. Why don't we base our guilds here? And that's where Jesus finds the church. Now, of course, it's very attractive, you know, a, a land of opportunity. We often call North America that. And that was the lure in Theatira. If you weren't born into nobility, if you didn't have property or farmland that you can live off of, if you didn't serve under a rich family, Theatira looked like the land of opportunity for you. It was your opportunity to get out of whatever social class you were in and to move up in the world. It's important for us to remember that 2,000 years ago, the quality of life wasn't quite as it is today. We neglect to appreciate the fact that we have boxes that can cool and preserve food. We call them refrigerators, right? And when we don't want that food to be cold anymore, we put it into another box that superheats it in a matter of minutes, call those microwaves. These things, we have insurance, you know, if things get stolen or destroyed, there's insurance companies that can cover the losses. The people in Theatira didn't have those amenities. And so it was very attractive, this city. They didn't push you away for being of low birth. 
They gave everyone an opportunity. But the problem was also its strength. For the Christian to come to the city, they would soon find out that these guilds were not simply business guilds. They were also religious groups. The city of Theatira, they, the majority of them worshipped the god of Apollo, god Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. And many of the trades guilds, the craft guilds that were stationed there, if they weren't serving other pagan gods, they would serve Apollo. And to be a member of a guild also meant you had to be a member of the religion. That's tough for a Christian. And so they feel this immense pressure, and that's where Jesus finds them. Jesus says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What I love here, and, and the Bible in general, is how intentional and meaningful Jesus' words are. In a simple sentence, he has added who he is, and he has given them, given the Christians in Theatira, a memory to hold on to. When Jesus says he is the Son of God, he's not just speaking Christianese, right? He is challenging the religion in Theatira. Apollo, the son of Zeus, they called him the son of God. And Jesus, he tells the Christians, he reassures them, no, that's not the son of God, I am. And not only that, when he talks about this title and when he mentions eyes like a blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze, Jesus is making a direct reference to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. These two references, if you have ever read the book of Daniel, or maybe you haven't, but maybe these names are familiar to you. The reference to the Son of God is this story with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Maybe you haven't heard those stories, but their story is famous because they lived in a time where uh, the foreign king, his name was King Nebuchadnezzar, he demanded that everyone in his kingdom should kneel and worship him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being faithful followers of God, knew that this wasn't right. And so while everybody else fell onto their knees and worshipped Nebuchadnezzar, they stood standing. This didn't sit well with the king, and so he tied them up threw them into a fiery furnace to die. When the guards came up to check on them, they were shocked because not only did they find these three men unharmed in the fire, but they also found a fourth person whom the guard witnessed as the Son of God. Later on in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel receives a vision he sees how the kingdoms of Babylon falls, how, how the Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdoms rise and they fall and, and the arrival of, the, uh, of Rome. And at the end of that, he also sees God establishing his eternal kingdom with a figure who he calls the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior, 
he sees this figure and he describes this person as having eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze. See, Jesus is making a direct reference to this because he's saying to the Christians in Theatira, hey, guess what? I know you are struggling. I know you're under immense pressure. I know that it's tempting to join these guilds. It'll make your life so much easier. But hey, do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I was with them and I'm with you too. I can do all these things. I can preserve you. I can, I can provide for you. How can I do this? Well, you know the person that Daniel saw 700 years ago? Well, that was me. Daniel, who saw Jesus as he saw these visions and predicted 700 years of history unfolding, nobody outside of the church could really understand or explain how he was able to do that. Jesus is saying the whole point of that vision was to reveal to you that I am establishing my kingdom here, now, with you. And so Jesus does this. He tells them that this vision was about me, and guess what? If I am the king of this eternal kingdom, that makes you citizens of a greater kingdom than Rome. He says, I'm the savior that will bring you deliverance. The bread of life is a dense loaf. We've only gone through one verse in this letter. But after giving the church this sense of assurance, Jesus goes on to encourage them. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than what you did at first. And you might find this encouragement uh, oddly familiar because a few weeks back when Kyle was preaching about the letter to uh, the Ephesians, they also were encouraged, they were also praised for their perseverance and their endurance and their faith. But one thing that uh, contrasts the church in Ephesus and the church in Theatira are the things that seem to make a switch. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, you're doing all of these great things, your love, your perseverance. Hey, you even shun away false teachers. But this I have against you. You have lost your first love. Whereas here in Theatira, he's saying, man, your love, your grace, your service, all of these things, they're abundant. And heck, they're even growing more than before. As a visual aid, if you are a business person like a uh, like if you were in Theatira, I have this visual aid for you uh, to show sort of what Jesus is talking about, how in Theatira, the sound teaching is going downhill, but the love is going up. Whereas in Ephesus, the love is going down, but the teaching is going up. He's talking about this, this uh, hard and challenging balance that the churches have to face. This balance of being able to protect sound teaching 
while also being loving and gracious and accepting. I've been so encouraged uh, by our youth in the past year and a half that I've been here. Last year, I saw how great the youth were at inviting their friends, and some of those friends haven't heard the name of Jesus or was never told that Jesus loved them before coming to youth. And it, come, it came to the point where I even see some of them uh, on Sundays. And it's so encouraging, it's so great, but the youth didn't stop there. We had baptisms all throughout the year. We also, had, uh, we also have a group of senior girls who have committed to going to Guatemala to serve there, to see what God is doing. Even this past month, we had our senior youth go to Archway and help sort out food, ensuring that whoever receives it, a person or their family, will receive good quality and dignifying supplies. And then the day after, we had families in our church go and hand out child sponsorship packets at the Toby Mac concert, leading up to 250 child sponsorships that night. It's amazing and it's encouraging when I see that what Jesus is saying about the church in Theatira, how their deeds of love and faith and perseverance and service are increasing and how that resonates with what I see in Emmanuel, it's encouraging. Makes me want more. Makes me crave God's presence more. But we also have to look and be careful of what Jesus is warning against. That our love and our faith and our service and perseverance are growing while at the same time we are protecting our doctrine. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Then we move along to verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Theatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. The church in Theatira struggles from a problem worse than tolerance. In fact, the Greek word translated into tolerance here in this letter is different from the word that they use in Ephesus. In Ephesus, the Greek word uh, provides this imagery that whenever a false teacher comes along, they receive it like an unbearable noise. They just have to get out of there or they just have to shut it up. But the word for tolerance here in Theatira is different. In fact, it's, it's not just accepting or just letting it be, but it's a word of allowance, of permission. What they're doing is that they're giving Jezebel this platform to teach, to spread these false doctrines in the church. Their problem is probably closer to our modern day's use of the word tolerance, since Jezebel, her teachings lead to the celebration 
of other religions. But that's not, but is that not how tolerance is defined in our culture as well? That if we don't celebrate, then we're not being tolerant? Some have ran with the notion that the letter to Theatira serves as a commentary on gender roles in the church. But I think that's unfair to make, seeing as how Ephesus had to deal with a plurality of evil men and false doctrines. Instead, it seems as though Jesus is more concerned about the false teachings being spread than the person, whether woman or man, spreading them. What is this false teaching? Jesus gives us a hint with the nickname he uses. Jezebel isn't the real name of the woman who is teaching um, false doctrines in the church in Theatira, but he gives her this nickname because she fits into a mold, a mold established by a woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament. See, Jezebel in the Old Testament, you can find her in 1 Kings chapters 18 to 22. She was a foreign princess. And the foreign aspect of her was important because growing outside of Israel in a foreign nation called Tyre, she was raised up in a different religion. And so when the king of Israel married her and made her queen of Israel, the first thing that she did, and and one of the biggest efforts she made, was to try to get Israel to worship her gods. She would say to the Israelites, hey, you can worship the Lord, you can worship Yahweh, that's fine, but hey, look look at my God over here. You can worship him too. In fact, he gives you a lot more freedom. He doesn't tax you as much. Isn't that great? This is a teaching that she's asking for. She's convincing the people in Israel to worship another God. That it's not a problem to worship these two religions side by side. But it is a problem. We know this because in Exodus 3, or chapter 20, verse 3, what was God's first commandment to the Israelites? You shall have no other God beside me. So obviously God cares. Jezebel's, uh, Jezebel is telling everyone it's not a big deal. The Jezebel in Theatira, like the Jezebel in the Old Testament, was propagating a practice of compromise. In the midst of immense pressure to conform to the rest of society, to join these religious guilds, to partake in their food, sacrifice to uh, idols, to partake in the sexual acts, she's saying, hey, don't worry about it. God will forgive you, it's fine. She's saying he'll let it slide. He teaches the church, isn't God someone who loves you? If he loves you, wouldn't he let you uh, do better in life? Would he let you suffer this much? She tells him it's just food. It's just sex. What's so serious about it? But we know here in the church, it's not just food. And it's not just sex. As if sex can be a purely physical activity when we know 
it's always spiritual too. Yesterday I went downtown, downtown Vancouver. It was a long drive. And I went and I bought, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, I went to buy this decorative shield. Look at that. Shiny, huh? I went to buy this shield from a guy. It wasn't from the nice part of Vancouver, so it makes sense why he would have it. But um, I went to buy it. And it's made out of metal. You can see there, there's a little bit of uh, polishing marks. Obviously, this part isn't, but I don't really care much about it. It's made out of metal, so technically it still functions as a shield, right? If someone were to attack me, I can still use it uh, to block their attack. But I brought it for a reason. I brought this thing for a reason. Church, what is a shield usually for? What's its main purpose? It's to protect you, right? I'm not a huge guy, so it's just enough to protect my vitals, right? But you guys should admit that even a shield like this, it's not made out of plastic, but even a shield like this made out of metal really depends on the quality of the materials it's made of. And the quality, even though it's metal, can make or break the whole usefulness of this shield. You see, in processing metal like this, you often purify the contents because people know the, the purer a metal is, the stronger it is. It can take a better beating. It could absorb more kinetic energy. It lasts longer. It's tougher. But the more impurities that this shield will possess, the more brittle and the weaker it becomes the more vulnerable it is to shattering or uh, bending or tearing apart. The impurities of this shield have a huge effect on compromising its integrity. Much in the same way that compromises to our faith affect and can make or break the strength of our faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, Paul writes and he tells us to put on the full armor of God. And you can guess what the shield represents. It represents faith, the first layer of defense, the first line of defense. And he also mentions the helmet of salvation. He, he mentions the breastplate of of righteousness, and all of these things, the more that we compromise, the more that we allow impurities to grow or to remain inside, the weaker our armor of God becomes. Now, it doesn't affect clearly how your armor looks. You can have a great looking relationship with Jesus. You can have, you can, people may compliment you on how, how, you, how your faith in Jesus makes you look, how holy it makes you appear, but when push comes to shove, 
and your faith is brittle and weak, how long before you abandon it to find cover elsewhere? This is the doctrine that Jezebel was teaching. It's a doctrine that belongs to the deep things of Satan, as Jesus describes in verse 24. The doctrine states that you can separate what you believe inside from how you live outside. You can compartmentalize faith so that you can live however you like and God won't say a word. Jezebel teaches that God is impotent, that God is silent, that he'll approve of whatever you decide is good and righteous. He'll follow your lead and agree with your choices. He's at your beck and call to forgive you without any recourse. It's a convenient God to worship. After all, it's the God that the governments of this world worship, right? They say, in God we trust. And then they leave it to a God that's fashioned after them. But the God that Jezebel teaches is not our God. Our God is the lion and the lamb. Verses 21 to 23. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Let's not overlook that God cannot be loving and righteous if he is not also wrathful. That for those who do not compromise, for those who live earnestly for God, they will be vindicated. They will be justified. Sometimes we read passages of punishment and consider them harsh. But let's not forget that punishment is inevitable in an unrepentant world where God is both loving and just. If he doesn't exercise justice, he's not loving. He declares, Jesus declares, he will exact his judgment onto Jezebel and her children meaning the people who follow her teaching. And from this, we are reminded of two things. One is that God is patient. And two is that God is protective of his people. Jesus mentions he has given Jezebel time to repent, but she was unwilling. And two verses come to mind from there. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the second part of it, it says that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come into repentance. And that's amazing because that, I think, captures the heart of God. But also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And these two verses in conjunction, when we read that in the context of reading 
this letter to Theatira, it shows us that God is not some trigger-happy executioner. God sees what we do in secret behind closed doors. He knows our thoughts. He knows our past, our history. One of my professors in Bible college also worked as a detective in the RCMP in Vancouver. He worked in the domestic violence unit. And during class, he would share with us the struggles of having to see all of these horrifying cases day after day, what a personal toll it took on him spiritually. But he also assured us that the one thing that allowed him to rest his head at night was knowing that God is just and that one day he will bring forth judgment that is both appropriate, compassionate, but exact as well. No one will escape. God is patient and merciful. God calls us into repentance because when that day of judgment comes, we will either be found covered in Jesus' righteousness or covered in our sin. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus awards the victor. Jesus himself, of course, is the greater reward than we can ever hope for or receive. But the creator of the universe isn't stingy. Understand that victory doesn't just mean holding on to your faith, hiding away like Gideon did when he fell into the, into the threshing floor. But victory is holding out your faith, doing the works, following the will of God in life despite the circumstances that may come between you. To face immense pressure with the grace and love and faith of Jesus Christ. The irony here is that the Bible's picture of victory looks a lot like the world's picture of defeat. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the least on earth. The servant of all is the greatest in heaven, and the examples go on and on. Christian victory is bearing the image of Christ and living faithfully unto death. And while that may look like defeat to the world, a man dying on the cross, we know that it is the resurrection, it's victory in heaven. And for this, Jesus offers the eternal kingdom that was prophesied in Psalm 2. The word for rule here that you see in uh, verse 27 is the Greek word to shepherd, which informs us that this iron scepter is not a symbol to dominate, but it's a symbol of royalty. It's a symbol of guiding and gentleness. All to say that Jesus will lift you in honor, lift you up in honor. 
You will share in his glory as co-heirs to his kingdom. And the gift of the morning star mentioned at last is the gift of Christ who reveals himself as such in chapters 22, verses 16. But that's not all. We talk about this morning star, and obviously it also juxtaposes from, uh, from the religious guilds of the time. They worship the morning star, but they don't know what it really means. Jesus says, I am the morning star. And after this long and arduous night where you have faced this immense persecution, this immense pressure to conform, for those who have held on to their faith, day will come. There is hope in the morning. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you because you are the Son of God. You have shaped history in a way that your kingdom that you established on the cross has not fallen these past 2,000 years. Your kingdom is here today. We are your citizens. The church being spread globally, that is your kingdom here on earth. And Father, as its citizens, I pray that you just give us confidence, courage, strength, that we're, when we're outside of these doors, that we do not fail and compromise, but that we hold on and we persevere. That the faith that we have, that you have given us as a precious gift, we treat it precious, like a treasure. And that, God, we see you glorified in the end. That when judgment day comes, it's not a day of fear, but of celebration. In your mighty name, amen.